I know this already, but that's one of my favorite songs that was ever written. Actually, it's a, a little bit of a unique song. Uh, most songs are written to where each verse kind of builds up to the next verse. And that is certainly what is intended probably with that particular song. Uh, that last verse, which uh, talks about the day that the Lord will return, Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. Basically, it, there is a sense of building uh, but I'm a little bit torn because truthfully, the verse before that, to me, is one of the greatest highlights uh, for any of us. Uh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Uh, to me, that is the pinnacle for us. The most exciting thing for us ought to be to know that our sins have been forgiven. Now, there is excitement, obviously. There's going to come a day we're going to be in the presence of the Lord, and we ought to rejoice over that. Uh, but to me, it's, there's a reason for it to be my favorite song. So it's uh, an incredible song. Anyways, uh, I read a verse to you earlier, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and it said, And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved over the past month or so, we've been looking at the core elements of the New Testament church uh, and what it was like. We've talked about their focus on sound doctrine, something that is somewhat lost in many churches today. We talked about fellowship more than just a time where we shake hands on Sunday morning. We talked about prayer, the need for that, and the fact that there is power in prayer. When God's people call upon the name of the Lord, He is there, and He is able to do abundantly more than we could imagine. We talked about the, last, the Lord's Supper, which was what we talked about last week, and we even celebrated that by participating in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we even talked about the sense of expectation that God was going to show up in the New Testament church and do the impossible. When the people came together in the New Testament church, every single time they expected God to show up. And Jesus had promised his disciples that you would do even greater things than that which you have seen me do already. Which was amazing considering the fact that Jesus himself raised people from the dead. Yet he had promised his disciples that you would do even greater things. Uh, you remember the lady who, uh, she had a continuous issue of blood, and she thought to herself, if only I could touch the hem of Jesus' garment, then I would be healed, and then I would be whole. Actually, as the disciples walked through the streets, following the resurrection of Christ, following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, individuals would reach a point where they would they thought, if I could only get in the shadow of Peter or John, then I could be healed. It's interesting that this woman felt the need to touch his garment, knowing there was power in the garment. But even with the disciples, the power of God was so present, they didn't even have to touch him. They just needed to get in the shadow. Well, today I invite you to be in the shadow of God's power and his presence. Certainly there are many other things that we could look at in this series, but today I want to wrap up this series by talking about the need for us to participate in church growth, and specifically not just any type of church growth, but a specific kind. Know that as I present this, I'm not all that concerned with numbers, although I do believe that numbers do matter. I just think that we can get so caught up in numbers that we lose sight of the people behind those numbers. I'm also not just talking about reaching people who attend some other church and they've become disgruntled with their pastor. 
Some of that may happen from time to time, but one of our primary purposes as a church ought to be to reach those who are lost, who do not yet have a relationship with Christ or who are separated from the body of Christ. How can we have a growing church? I get email advertisements every week from various companies and organizations who apparently have figured out the secret ingredient for church growth. Some of it has to do with advertising techniques, newer technology, better staffing, follow-up, and assimilation. And you can have the secret, secret recipe for only $49 per month. Please don't get me wrong. I do believe that there is much that we can learn from others. I also do not believe that we are doing as well as we need to regarding outreach and evangelism. We are surrounded by a world of people who desperately need to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. In fact, I was reading a few statistics this past week. There are two of them I want to share with you. The first is that 75% of the people in the United States attend no church on a regular basis. I've shared with you before that even the idea of attending church on a regular basis is irregular. Um, actually, if an individual attends church 17 times per year, that is considered regular attendance. Uh, that is about one and a half times per month an individual coming to church. A second statistic is especially alarming because of the community in which we live. 66% of young adults are leaving the church following high school. In a college community, we have an incredible opportunity to turn this around. But I'm not sure that we need a new model that will be more effective. I think we simply need to do a better job of using the model that is laid out in Scripture already. The Apostle Paul knew that fundamentally a growing church is made up of growing Christians. As he took time to pray for and to instruct the Christians he knew, and by the, by the Lord's grace, the church grew. I want you to, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the first letter of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. We're going to begin reading today in chapter 3, verse 12, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, it sounds like a very long passage, but it's really not. In this letter, Paul is writing to the church and he is identifying some things, not only that must be present, but he is praying for them and then he is instructing them, this is what you ought to do. 1 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 3, verse 12, says this. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And then beginning in chapter 4, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. 
the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And so that you will not be dependent on anybody. We'll look at... We'll look first at Paul's prayer for a growing church, starting in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, the motive for a growing church as well, and then we'll also look at the instructions for a growing church. All three are important, and I want us to see each of those today. First of all, let's talk about the prayers for a growing church. Just as Paul did back in chapter 1 of this same book, in verses 2 and 3, Paul shared with the Thessalonians what it was that he prayed for in their lives. He prayed two things for them. He prayed for their love, and he prayed for their holiness. He prayed for them. We read in verse 12, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Paul knows that God is the source of love. Notice that Paul doesn't simply tell them to be more loving. That's our natural response to tell people to love each other. But instead, Paul prays to God because he knows that what he is asking is something which God is certainly able to do. And it is something which God has said that he desires for each of us. He desires that we love one another. After all, it is God who has both given us the example of love and gives us the power to follow that example. In 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8, we read, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. There is a connection between love and God. If you claim to be a child of God, yet you do not love, there is a disconnect somewhere taking place. If you do not love the people who are in your life, then you cannot claim to truly know God because God himself is love and he loves every one of those individuals because he created each one in his own image. We Christians love then because God first loved us, both in the sense that he has given us an example of love, but also in the sense that he empowers us. His presence in our lives empowers us to love one another. And so if we need to grow in love, what should we do? The way to grow is to pray. Paul, Paul presumes that they are loving. It's clear from verse 9 of chapter 4, but... He wants their love to increase, even overflow, to overflow its banks, to break out of its bounds. Christians should always be growing. 
It's good to pray for this for those we know and for ourselves that we would more and more have love for each other. You know, there's this idea of overflowing. I remember reading a book many years ago by a guy named David Busby, and uh, he's talking specifically about having the presence of God and having the joy of the Lord within us. And he talks about this idea of overflowing. He said, we ought to be so filled with the Spirit of God that when we bump into other people, we splash out on them. Because the, the joy and the presence of the Lord is so overflowing in our lives that it naturally can't just stay within the boundaries of our little container. The reality is when we truly have the love of God in our lives, the Spirit of God in our lives, when we bump into other people, we ought to splash out on them. Now let me just ask a question. What are you splashing out on other people today? I know there are some of them that are really easy to love. <laughs> there are some people that think like us, that act like us, that look like us. Man, it's easy to love those individuals. What are you splashing out on the ones who don't fit that category? Do you still share with them the love that is in Jesus Christ? We read in verse 13 that Paul prayed for holiness as well. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. He not only prays for love, but he also prays for holiness. Again, note the source of this strength. Paul prays that God will strengthen the very core of their beings, their personality, their will, their hearts. And he tells them why he wants their hearts to be strengthened. So that they will be blameless and holy before God. Paul prays negatively that, they will, that there will be no sin, no charge to be laid against them. That they will be blameless. But he also prays positively that they would be holy, that their lives would reflect the purity of God's good character. Paul wants them to put off the old and to put on the new. Did you know that is a part of the salvation experience that God makes available to us? God never intended us to remain in our sin. To keep doing the same things that we did before, he desires that we be transformed. We talked, even during the prayer this morning, we were talking about the fact that individuals are transformed from a destination for hell to now being destined for heaven, and that is a great thing. But do you know that the act of salvation is about much more than just eternity? God desires to change us today, to transform who we are so that we don't live the same way we did before. Far too many of us, even in the church, have lived like we're not saved. We live with a sense of peace because, you know, I, I prayed a prayer and therefore I know I'm going to heaven when I die. But aside from that, we live the same way we did before. That doesn't make any sense. He didn't save you so you'd still be stuck in your sin. He saved you so that you could be set free to be holy and blameless I'm going to tell you, blameless is a really difficult idea. Holy is a difficult idea. But it is something that God calls us to. And it's something that his Holy Spirit can enable us to experience. Isn't it interesting 
what Paul didn't tell them he had prayed for. He didn't say, you know, I'm praying for your physical health, your prosperity. I'm praying for the end of your persecutions because you know that they were experiencing those things right then. The things which we probably would most intentionally and naturally pray for. It doesn't mean that Paul never prayed these things for them. He probably did pray that God would deliver them, that God would give them health. But it's not what he shares here with them. Paul seems mainly concerned to pray not for their physical or material prosperity, but for their spiritual prosperity. The most important thing we have is not possessions or even other people, the things that are going on in our lives. The greatest thing that we have, the most important thing we have is our relationship with God. And that's what Paul chose to focus on. Not only did Paul pray for the church, but he also gives them a clear motive to have a growing church. As he prayed for the Thessalonians, he motivated them with the prospect of living to please God in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul implored them, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. In other words, don't be satisfied. Don't think, you know, I've reached this point. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm good. I urge you to do this even more and more. He had already reminded them of a number of things that he had told them when he was with them, when he ministered in their midst. And now, what does he say that he had instructed them in? How to live. It wasn't just instruction in what to believe, but in how they were to live, practically putting your belief into action. When Paul was with these believers, he had not simply taught with words, but he showed them how to live. When he heard that they were standing firm in the Lord, as he says up in verse 8, this doesn't simply mean that they still held the right beliefs, but that they were still living the right lives. As Matthew Henry said, to talk well without living well will never bring us to heaven. Again, many of us in the church have done a great job of talking spirituality, talking Christianity. But God desires that we live the Christian life as well. Paul reminds them of how they were to live. He says, in order to please God. Whatever the outward forms of user-friendly churches, the heart of any true church growth will be a desire to please God. If we're honest, we must admit that we all live to please someone. Some of us are still living to please a family member. I want to make sure my mom and dad are happy. I want to please my spouse. I want to please my kids. I want to please my employer. I want to please... There are all kinds of people that we want to please. What if, what if as the body of Christ we decide I'm going to live in such a way that I will please my God above all else? How different, not only would this church be, but how different would this community be? How different would this world be if the only one we sought to please was Jesus Christ? You see here, again in this passage, 
there is an idea of growth. He says, as in fact you are living, he wants you to do this more and more. So we're talking about trying to reach a world that's broken, a world that desperately needs Jesus, but it begins within us. We need more. He doesn't just want the church to abide, but he wants the church to abound. The mark of a growing Christian isn't perfection, but it is the desire to grow more, to reach a point where you're not satisfied with where you are today, but every day wanting to become more and more like him, wanting to experience more and more of him. That's what God desires for us. Paul urges them to do this. The word urge used in verse 1 is a word that Paul used to introduce his passionate instructions, to seize the point and to drive it home. I urge you to do this. Brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you. So there's the question, but then, and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. More and more, Paul urged them to grow into people who would live as those who would please God. This is the motive of a growing church. It's not so we can say, you know, look how many people attend church on Sunday morning. In fact, the truth is, if we were to reach people and they end up in another church, we will celebrate that. The goal is not to say, look how big Trinity Wesleyan Church is. But the goal is to transform this world with the hope of Jesus Christ. The goal is to be able to reach people who have no hope, to introduce them to a love and a grace and an eternal life, but also the transforming power of Jesus today. God's desire is that we would do exactly that. He does offer some instructions for a growing church. Paul prayed for them. Pray that they would be loving and holy. He implored them to this end. Now in his final and longest part of this passage, he adds to these some specific instructions for a growing church. First, he instructs them a little bit about holiness. In verses 2 through 8, it talks about sexual immorality and not taking advantage of one another. But this is not intended to be an exhaustive list. It is a generalization identifying the fact that God will punish those who remain in their immorality. Yeah, you prayed a prayer, but you continue to live as if you didn't. There are consequences. It tells us that some of us are still living impure lives, even though we were called to live pure lives. Blameless, holy. So one way they should live more and more is in their holiness. Be holy. So he says in verse 3, in the old versions, they would actually use words like sanctification. It is God's will that we be increasingly sanctified, made holy, special, separate, cleansed. The most fundamentally holy thing is God. As Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2, 2, she said, there is no one holy like the Lord. We are therefore to reflect God's character in our own holy behavior. What shows we are his people most clearly is a holy lifestyle. When people see Christ alive in us, 
it tells them that he desires to live in them as well. Unfortunately, there are many in the church, and I'm going to extend this today, and I'm going to talk about those in church leadership. There have been many in the church leadership who have not done a good job of walking in the holiness of Christ. And then we expect our people to somehow become a reflection of God, but they're not even seeing it in their pulpits. They're not even seeing it in those who are in church leadership, on church boards, Sunday school teachers, whatever role you have. And we wonder, what's wrong with the church today? And often it is simply that they have not seen it lived out in front of them. If we want to be a church that truly is involved with transforming this community, then it must begin here and it must begin in us. We need to be a people that reflect his character and his love to the world around us. There's an interesting phrase, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. As Paul said to the believers in Ephesus, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before God. Paul prayed for the Philippian believers so that they might be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. He told the Colossian believers that Christ had reconciled to himself to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. There is a repeated theme in all of these letters that God has an expectation upon his people that they would live holy and blameless lives. Yet far too many of us would rather just talk about the love that we're supposed to share. We are supposed to be a church full of love and grace. We are supposed to be a church that is continually reaching into the lives of others to meet needs. But you cannot separate the fact that we also are to be a church is filled with holy individuals who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God becoming more and more like him every day. That's who we're supposed to be. And if we're not, then something is wrong. I will tell you, this church is growing. There is a reason for us to celebrate God's faithfulness and his provisions in this church. But we are barely keeping up with the population growth in our community. I know there, there are many churches today that are in decline, even in the midst of population growth. So I, I get it 100%. But we as a church need to be doing more to reach those who are lost. There are a couple reasons for that. I will tell you some of it, I'm going to take full responsibility on this. There have been times that we've been on cruise control, and I'm as much a part of that as anybody else. We're just going about doing our thing, and, you know, we just assume everything's going to take care of itself, but we need to be very intentional to reach those who are lost. Did you know there are many who are lost in our community that you have contact with every single day? Some of you in your work, you come in contact with people that are broken. I will tell you that, and you guys know I do Uber driving and stuff, and I've talked about it before, but, man, you'd be amazed the conversations that people have in it in a car with an Uber driver. There are times I want to kind of laugh at some of what I hear. 
I'll tell you, this week, as I was talking with a couple individuals, it broke my heart. I listen to people who have no hope. And I know there are some that do have hope, and they have great dreams. they got great plans for things that are going to take place down the road. They have no hope. Many of them are so enslaved by sin, they feel like there's no way out. In fact, it's become normal. Why would I want out? I'm telling you that there is a God who is able to redeem and remove. One who is able to take away all those sins, all those things that have enslaved us and kept us in bondage for far too long. There is a God who is able to meet those needs. We need to be the people who are bringing hope and grace and holiness to the world around us. I'm going to request one thing of you today. I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to ask you to pray as well. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to do this, to pray that God will give you a burden for the lost in this community. That God would open up doors in your life and in my life so that the people around us can truly know Jesus Christ. Maybe he'll use you. Maybe you'll get to share this hope and this grace and this love with someone else. Maybe God will use somebody else. But I want to pray that God would give you the opportunity and the burden for those who are lost so that you will not be satisfied just being on cruise control and going along with whatever happens. If you would bow your heads with me, Father, as we come before you, we are so grateful that you reached into our lives in the midst of our sin and you brought us redemption and forgiveness and hope. We recognize that there are many around us who do not yet have that hope. But I pray that you would, first of all, I pray that you would speak to their hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and help them to recognize that there is a way out. Help them to see that through your son, Jesus Christ, all of us can be forgiven. And we can find purpose and meaning and we can find true life and fulfillment. Lord, I pray that they would no longer be enslaved by the bondage of sin, but that you would set them free to live in a way they never thought even possible. Lord, I pray that you would give each of us a burden to not only pray for these individuals, but to be a part of presenting your grace and love to them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to never be satisfied with knowing that so many of the people around us are destined for hell. We believe that heaven is a real place. We also believe that hell is a real place. And if anyone is not ready on the day of your judgment, we believe today that those individuals will not be ushered into the presence of God, but rather will be ushered into an eternal death. Lord, I pray that we would never be okay with that. Give us a burden for the lost and help us to be faithful to reach into their lives to change. Be 
the individual from the inside out. Let your spirit have its way in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I do want to challenge you with one last thing, and it's, it's simply this. I assume everyone who is here today already knows Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If that is not correct, you need to make sure you're ready, because that same truth that on the day of judgment, some will be ushered into the presence of God where we'll spend eternity with him in heaven, and others will be ushered into the presence of darkness, is still true for you too. Make sure your heart is ready so that when that day comes, you won't have to fear. So thank you for being with us this morning. It is a pleasure to have you. If you would come back next week and we'll actually be looking at Thanksgiving next week, even though it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So thank you for being with us and go in peace.